If you've got your Bibles with you, could you turn with me please to 1 John chapter 3. You're wondering who this odd couple are in the back corner. There's some friends of ours that have come to visit us from Stoke. <laughs> so, so yeah. thank you, Elizabeth. You've never been, clearly. <laughs> Amen. You can't rib him later. He's a Liverpool fan. There, well, there you go. Seemingly not as bad as being a Bolton fan, but there you go. <laughs> Right, hopefully you've found that. Let's read this together, 1 John 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called his children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope is in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he has, was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned. And from the beginning... For the pure purpose of the Son of God was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was as wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. So do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. Whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandment abides in him, and he in us, and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Amen. Let's just pray a second. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord, and we pray just bless it to us now. Speak to your congregation, I pray. Challenge us, Lord, for your word. Let these be your words and not mine. In your mighty name, Father. Amen. Amen. Well, that's a scary chapter, isn't it? 
And I think it's a good reason that the Lord has given these, these prophetic words this morning. Because 1 John 3 is one of them clicks, close the Bible, it's scary, kind of chapters. So let's, uh, let's talk about it. Today, what I want to do is start yet another subsection of our Summer of Love series. But this will be our last, and we will soon be finished with our Summer of Love series. So don't cry. But we're there at the end. It's my intention after this, after the church celebration, that we move into, which is our vision, a year of preparation, that not only as we plan practically as a church, that we prepare spiritually and scripturally through the word of God. And so I want to look at some of the basics, of the doctrines, of the most important things that we have grasps of them, and we have good pillars that we hold on to as, as Christians. But for these next three weeks, I'm going to finish our Summer of Love series and what we've done is, first of all, we focused on the love that God has for us. Then we focused on how we reciprocate our love to God. Thirdly, we then talked about loving our neighbours as ourselves. And now these last three weeks, I want to spend on how we love one another within the church, within our family. Remember what 1 John 4 said? It said, Beloved, let us love one another, for the love is of God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love has not known God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was revealed in us, because God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation concerning our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Therefore, I wish to answer three questions. First of all, what should the fellowship of the saints be? Secondly, how far are you going to go? How far is too far with the fellowship of the saints? And finally, what if the true church is one of brotherly love? How do we then become Philadelphia? How do we become the Philadelphia church? And that should be the target for all churches. But this week we're going to talk about what the fellowship of the saints should be. And we're going to look here at 1 John 3, the whole chapter. And we have to because it's a very scary chapter. It's one of them that sometimes if you read this and you closed it, you'd doubt your own salvation. And it's possible at this moment in time, you're not even listening to anything I'm saying. You're actually thinking to yourself, but I sin. I sin. Am I saved? I know I sin. It says there, anybody who commits sin isn't saved. So I sin. Does that mean I'm saved? And it's a real panic. It is very imperative for the next 10 minutes that nobody goes to the toilet. <laughs> so that I have a chance to explain to you what this verse means. So do not walk out at this stage. Otherwise, you will be absolutely leaving it going thinking, who can be saved? You know what's interesting about John's letter is this. There are absolutely no clues as to who it's written to. We don't know who he was writing to. And as such, it's a universal letter that can be written and read by anybody in the church, no matter what the church age is. Because like most verses in the Bible, when we want to study them, we can't just take them and say, well, that applies to me. We have to study them in the context of the time and the people that they were written to. Why was that said to them? And then how does that message apply to me? But with 1 John, we don't have that. 
so we can take the message and we can understand and we need to look at it in the terms of other. It has universal access. We can understand it because it was a circular letter sent out to all of the churches, not just to one church. And the crux of John's message is about love. What the church should be about, love. And that's what this letter is about. It is the expression of love in our lives. How is the love of God, which is in us, practically shown through us? That's an important question and an important answer that we all need. How is the love of God that's been given to us this morning, we have enjoyed in worship? How might it be practically shown out of us? So this is a practical message this morning. And it's important, especially if the challenge to all of Christians is to reveal just a little bit every day, a little bit more of the Lord Jesus inhabiting us. As we said a couple of weeks ago, we must decline so that the Lord not may increase because he's always been there, but his visibility might increase. So that those around us that we know are siblings, our parents, our spouses, our significant others, our work colleagues, our neighbours, whoever might say, yes, I can see God in that person. How might we do that? How might we outwork it that we decrease and that the Lord's visibility increases in us? And that's important. So St. John's message is exceptionally important. Why? Because, friends, you know, we're not going to win Blackburn if we run up and down the town throwing tracks at people, especially if you throw them at people. But even giving people tracks or knocking on doors and doing all of those things will not win people to Jesus. At the same time, sitting in here, having our prayer meetings and Bible studies won't win people to Blackburn. As lovely as it is. There's only one way that we will win all of those people, those people that we love and we want to see come to a knowledge of salvation. And that is, they have to see Christ in us. Because we are not the only person peddling a religion. And we're not the only people peddling a version of Christianity. We really shouldn't be peddling it at all. We're not trying to sell or convince people. We cannot use the latest administrative or sales tactics to try and convince people because they've seen it all before. They've genuinely got to see. Like with Lazarus, a man who was dead, who was raised to life. That's what they've got to see in each one of us. Why do people do the Atkins diet? Well, mainly because you don't have to eat veg. But the other side of it, is because you see these celebrities who throw themselves on the Atkins diet lose two stone in a month. Now, that's not healthy weight loss, but they do it, and everybody goes, I get to eat steak and lose weight. That's fantastic. People do it because they see these results. They don't necessarily see what damage it does, but they see the results which happens from it. And so John exclaims, same here, that the love of God, which he has showed to us, is so important to the Lord that we are now called his sons. He didn't just give it to us, even though it's given freely. It's given to us to the point where the Lord will call us sons and daughters of God, heirs to his kingdom. 
That is a wonderful promise. That's not given lightly. We should remember how wonderful it is. That is the power of the love that was given to us. And it must be practically outworked. And yet we, what's highlighted in verse 2 is for all of those who are sitting in our seats feeling absolutely unworthy of this calling of God or unchanged, that the real change hasn't really been seen yet. The real change that God is going to do in us hasn't been seen in us. The metamorphosis of the caterpillar is only seen when it is brought forth, breaks out of the cocoon and is resurrected. And that's the same for us. The glory of what God has done in our lives will not be truly seen until we are resurrected with Christ Jesus. Until we are brought up into glory. Until we are in the heavenly places where we fly as the butterfly flies. And all of the holiness of God, because he says it to you there, we haven't seen it in full. We might think, well, I'm not worthy of the calling of the Christian because I don't see all of this. But the promise is that comes. That is what will happen in the resurrection. Yet like the cocoon that the caterpillar spins, which when you see the cocoon, you know that the change is happening. Then we too must have our own cocoon that those who are outwards can see that there is a change of God going on in our lives. Do you understand me with that, that kind of analogy and that kind of point? We may not be the full change and that won't happen until we are perfected with Christ Jesus. As it says in Philippians 3, and this is to promise to hold on to, none of us are perfect. None of us are perfect, but we will be perfected when we find with Christ Jesus. But right now, we must show that we are being changed by the love of God. But that's enough stalling. Let's get back to these terrifying verses that we've all just read. And trouble us. So is John's point that this cocoon that we must show a change is he thinks that we should exhibit to others is one of sinless perfection. On a plain reading of what you read in 1 John, it would be easy to come to the conclusion that what John is saying is we should be sinless. If there's even the very smallest amount that we sin, then we aren't of salvation. Without an outworking of this, then we aren't even actually saved. Well, if that is what John was saying, then I don't know about you, but I'm not saved, and there's, I might as well pack up and go home. In fact, I'm pretty sure all of us in here could probably say, well, we don't match up to John's description there of what a saved person is. In fact, it's not just us. The Apostle Paul doesn't match up to what John has just said there. He said, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I should do. And even he's... You know, I knew that was going to happen, and I forgot to put it on silent earlier. Sorry. (laughs) You know, I never even have it on normally. The thing is, is that's a Facebook message from Grace Community Church, so so I don't know which one of you just sent it. You should be listening. (laughs) There we go. Well, there we go. See if we're going to find that chain of thought again. Well, we might as well all pack up. But the answer has to be a firm no. 
That isn't what John's talking about. It can't be. Because it would be contrary to Paul's declaration. It would be contrary to what Paul says in Philippians 3, when he says none of us can be perfect, so that we would have two verses of the Bible contradicting each other. And friends, that doesn't happen. And even that Jesus writes to the churches in Revelation and exhorts and rebukes certain churches for things that they are doing which he counts as sin. So he still calls them saints, yet he rebukes them for sin. Then if even Jesus is doing it, then we cannot look at what John is saying here and say what he means is we shouldn't sin. So what is John saying? Because if we read it plainly, then it is what I've just said. Well, the answer is that John isn't talking here of a cocoon item. He's talking of the full metamorphosis. What it will be like when we're resurrected with Christ. That we will be in that sinless perfection. An outworking which will be completed when we're translated into that glory. Now, I'm not talking about a second salvation here. I'm talking of what it will be like to fly to cast off the flesh that holds us back. You know, the flesh is always crying out for us to do the wrong thing, to sin. But when we cast that off, that's what it'll be like. And that's what it's like for the butterfly when they kick off the flesh of the the caterpillar, that they can fly, that weight is gone. John's statement, unlike Paul's, is not directly linked to sin in terms of breaking the law in a single act, such as, I've just told a lie, or I've just said I hate something to somebody. It's not about that at all. They aren't linked even into breaking the law in a habitual sense of sin, in that we might do a series of sins. It's not that. Because, friends, in truth, Christians, we battle through our lives. Some things we, uh, we do, and we can't say accidentally do, because Matt and I said we don't accidentally sin last week. That we accident, but we sin. We give in to our temptations and we sin. Some things are really difficult for us to not do. And we know that we must never ever go even near the presence of such of those sins because they will cause us to sin and fall into those traps. That is what it is like to be a Christian. We walk. It's a battle. We've been talking about this on a Wednesday in our Bible study. The wilderness wanderings. It's a battle. One that we must remember, friends, Christ Jesus has given us the victory in. Christ has already given us the victory in. And as with all bullies, of which the devil is chief, the only power he has is the power that we give him. The power that we give to the devil. If we give him that, then he'll use it against us. And that's very important. John isn't talking here about the individual act of sinning. He's talking about the attitude of sin, the bigger picture. He's not talking as Paul does about the individual sins or the occasional sins or these things. He's talking about the nature within us and the nature of sin. Which Paul taught to us before salvation we were dead in. John shows that the outworking of the Lord's transforming love within us is that the desire to be selfish is broken. That the sin attitude is to be selfish. And that the righteous attitude is not. That when we sin, we commit a selfish act. But our lives are not daily a sense of pleasing ourselves 
as our first thought. That's where the Christian shouldn't be. If daily you are saying to yourself, I must please myself, that's where we aren't. Why? Because we have the great commandments given to us by the Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your soul, all your mind, and all your heart. And love your neighbour as yourself. That instantly puts everybody else in front. Now, although we may not live up to this daily, we are different than we were before we were saved. Because we don't desire to do that all of the time. To be self-serving. And you might say, well, I know lots of people who don't know Jesus, but they're not selfish all the time. You know, yesterday at the fun day, I had a group of, of you know, this thing always happens when you do any kind of event like this, from different community groups that came up to me, and I do this, and I do that, and I do this, instantly justifying their existence by the good works that they do. Friends, that is selfishness. It's self-serving. I'm a good person because I've been to see the queen and I've got something from her because I was helping the poor do this and I was helping. It's self-serving. It comes from that selfish motive. And it's funny, you know, the window cleaner that comes here, it makes me laugh. Every time he comes, he brings two tins for the food bank. Why do you think he does that? Because he sees it and it convicts him. But it's sin that should convict his friends, not the food bank. So he puts two tins in it and he walks away feeling, oh, I've done my bit and I can be happy about that. And that's, that's not the right message. Now we get into the realm of questioning of our motives. Was I selfish? Am I behaving selfish? Am I saved? Maybe I'm not. And then we're back to these terrifying verses again. And right now you might even still be thinking, well, I still don't know if I'm saved or not because sometimes I do act selfishly. Hence why John moves the chain of thought into a genuine practical outworking, which will be seen by others and be an indication that we are born again. It's in verse 10. In this, the children of God are revealed and the children of the devil. Everyone not practicing righteousness is not of God. Also, he who does not love his brother. Now, with regards to the practicing righteousness, again, it says in Philippians 3 that righteousness is faith in Jesus Christ. It's not good works. It's not being a good person. It's faith in Jesus Christ. If you've got faith in Jesus Christ, if you hold on to that promise in Romans 10.9, if we confess with our heart that the Jesus is Lord and was risen from the dead, then you are saved, then you are showing faith because that's not a logical argument. It's circular. We believe in the Lord because we believe in the Lord. And when you pull it all back and you say, well, what was the reason? You go, I don't know. I really genuinely don't know why it is that I believe this. And that's because it was the power of God that came into your life and you knew that Jesus was real. And that was that. Christ is our righteousness. But it's the second part that isn't an inward application because faith in Jesus Christ can't necessarily be seen externally. It's something that you have internally. But the next part is an outward application. It's not directed heavenward, it's directed externally to each of us, to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So how is it to be outworked? So it's important. John shows us in verse 11, 
For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. That this is the message taught from the beginning. You know, it wasn't just through the church age, through Acts, and through the, the writings of Paul, that we might know that we should love one another. It's not even through the teachings of Jesus that we might know that we should love our family. But it's through the whole Bible. That we see the Lord taking this Jeremy Kyle-esque family that really behaved abominably and turned them into the family of God, the children of Israel, who would normally have split and gone so many different ways that God created them a family. And as we're looking through numbers, we see all of the intricate bits that God does to create them. And that's the truth. It's central to the Lord's plan. It's all the way through the law, what the children of Israel should do to their neighbours. We must love one another because Christ loves us. And you know, John shows us here through Cain and Abel how we might really know if we're thinking selfishly or righteously. Do we look at another person in the church, giftings, prayer life, Bible knowledge, and act with jealousy at the way that they are? Or do we act as Elisha acted and say, can I have a double portion of what they've got, Lord? You know, it's not wrong to desire greater spiritual gifts from the Lord. It's not wrong to see, brothers, Paul said, be an imitator of me as I am an imitator of Christ. That's not wrong. That's righteous. Where it gets wrong, friends, is when we see somebody who's doing something and all we want to do is pull them down so that they're back at our level because we don't like how they make us feel. That's where it gets wrong, friends. Be imitators of Christ. We should look at them in love. We should look at them in awe and we should say, Lord, let me praise Lord. Not, have you seen what they're doing? Trying to find out every last little bit, any mighty thing that they've done, any little slip up so that the whole church can know about it. We won't grow anywhere if we grow like that. This is how we know we have the love of God. Do we hate or do we wish to emulate and surpass? You know, maybe we don't go as far as hating. Maybe we just dislike. But you know, friends, any form of despise that is aimed at somebody else within the church is wrong. And we mustn't have it. We must be like Abel, who just desired to serve God and to get closer to him. One of the unique and overarching themes that will come from Scripture over and over again is that the only person you can change is yourself. I could stand up here and preach alone. If you don't want to listen to it, you don't have to listen to it. I can't make you do it. I can't chase you home. I can't sit in your house and hope that you're doing every word that I've said. And if I did, that would be weird. And you probably would call the police. It is between us and God. Often the thought that goes through our mind, as Matt I said last week, oh, if only such and such was here, they'd really benefit from this message. But friends, you're here and you're here for a reason. It's only you who can change. You can't change others. You can only change you. And you can't hope that others will change. You can only change you and make sure, as Abel did, that your offering to God is right. 
Abel didn't try and make sure that Cain's offering was right to God as well. You're not doing that right, Cain, are you? Do it like I do. Abel just did it his way to God, the right way. And that's how we must be. You know, what's funny is that even though the purpose is that our light may shine, John warns us to expect from the very people that we want to show Jesus to that they will hate us for doing it. And that might seem a little bit of a backwards logic. But that's the way it is. So who are we to love? Now previously, the last few weeks, we talked about loving your neighbours ourselves. And I showed you that our neighbour literally means the other person. It's absolutely everybody. And that the outworking of this command is to project on all people a humble, dedicated love based on the actions we would like done to us. That's simple enough. Especially if we were that other person. So we should show them the love that we wish they were showing us. And that applies to everyone. But what we're talking about here, when John's talking here, is not to neighbours, we're talking about brothers. The word brothers here is Adelphius. And it means the term family, both practically and figuratively. In the terms of Christianity, it means both, because we are both spiritually and practically brothers and sisters. Our unity is based on no other fact than we were all saved by the same blood of the Lamb. We all have the same Heavenly Father. We're all called sons and daughters and heirs of the kingdom. Friends in no other group would these be your friends. Like your family, you never really get to choose who comes to church. And it really doesn't matter what our differences are. You know, some of us stand differently politically. Some of us stand differently football teams. Some of us like rap music. I don't know why. Some of us like other kind of music. Some of us like hymns. Some of us like choruses. Some of us like meetings that are done in a certain way. And some of us like meetings that are done in other ways. Some of us like roast beef and some of us don't. I feel like the, three, the five little pigs here. But they were, some of us went to market. Some of us didn't. But... It doesn't matter because none of those things are what we're unifying on. We're unifying on that we are born again, saved by the blood of the Lamb. So we're here discussing the outworking to each other within the church. The purpose of this outworking of the love of God towards each other in fellowship. It's so that those who will hate us for it outside of the church might actually see the Lord's love in action inside of the church and desire it that's the purpose of john's message here it's a gospel state message that the love that we show for one another is something there now i'm not saying we don't love outside because that's what the last three weeks were about we do love everybody but this in dedication is about the way that we love each other within the church and it's a special bond love that should be so great that those who aren't within the church will look and say, but that is somewhere that I want to go. So how is it outworked? Well, the remaining part of the chapter highlights how we might outwork our love for one another as a fellowship and its rewards. You know, this is the difficult part, I think, because often we're challenged by one another. The people in this room are not the people 
you would choose to be here. And that's the truth, friends. They are the people God chose to be here. So we really ought to shut up and just get on with it, is the truth on it. If we can't, you know, friends, we are in trouble. Because what John does now is summarise to us three ways in which we should internally think about each other in this church. It says here, 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brothers. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Everyone hating his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has everlasting life abiding in him. So the three ways that John puts our relationships with one another. First of all, you either hate that person. Now, hate, of course, is bad. I don't really think I've got to major on this. If you hate someone, it's his murder. A Christian has no place hating a brother, no matter what they have done. Why? Because when we weren't saved, we shouted, crucify him. And Jesus was crucified. We were the reason he had to go to the cross. And so if he was willing to do that for us, there is no person who's crossed us in any way that is worse than what we did to Christ, who first loved us. But what if you don't hate them? The truth is probably very few people in here hate anybody. I'm hoping nobody does. What if you're just neutral towards each other? Nah, I don't really think about them anyway. What John teaches us here is that even being neutral to one another isn't good enough. Now, this is where it gets a bit difficult. I don't know if I like this. There's so many people. I don't really necessarily have a relationship with so many of them. I don't know what I think about them. But neutrality towards one another is not good enough for John. He says it's got to be full-blown love or nothing. It's the third state that we must exist in as a church. To one another, we must love one another. Because this is the significance, friends, of our salvation. This is how we will show to others that we have moved from death to life because we love the unlovable. Look to the left. We're not going to say, look to the right, crisscross. No, we're not going to do that. Look to the left. Now look to the right. None of you are looking to the left. Look to the left. Now look to the right. Now look all around you. They're the people that you've got to love. <laughs> Hard work. But you know, salvation was easy. It didn't say Christianity would be. These are the people we've got to love. And you know, the word that is used for love here is agapeo, not agape. It's agapeo. But this is the human version of agape. It's Agape is the love that only God can bestow to us. But the word agape was around before the New Testament was written. And it meant a sacrificial love where somebody preferred another person over themselves. And in terms of what God did, he preferred us over himself, over his son. And that's why it's a divine love that we can't do. But the agapeo love, that's the human version of it. It's mean to love Others sacrificially. But what the joy is, is that it's a love that's given to us from God. Thank goodness. Otherwise, it'd be really hard to do. But God gives us the love that we must show to one another. 
That's why it's called agapeo. The love we must have is sacrificial, but it's the Lord who supplies it to us in the first place. So we must love one another with the same love that Christ gave to us sacrificially to one another. And the way we outwork this is then given in the next few verses. By this we have known the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother having need and shuts up his bowels from him, how does the love of God dwell in him? My children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So we're given two ways here to outwork it. One's a fairly big sacrifice, your life, and the other one's a fairly small one. Are we willing to give our lives to one another? That is a pretty big sacrifice. You know, and at the time when John wrote this, that was far more common than it really is to us today. And the truth is, is we could all say, of course I'd be willing to give my life for you. I would. I don't mind at all because the likelihood is we'll never, ever get tested with that. Truthfully. He knew to make a statement like this is simple because it wasn't to be outworked every single day. If you say, well, I willingly will give my life for anybody in this room. Well, that's not something you have to outwork every day. That's one act at some point in the future. Instead, it was a promise that would or could be outworked. And although we could say to each other, good morning, how are you? But in our hearts we're saying, I hate your rotten, stinking guts. It's the outworking that we're talking about here. There's only one way it could be tested. And the church wouldn't last long if the only way that we could test that we had the love of God in is if we all died for one another because that would just call us lemmings rather than, than a church. That wasn't the only thing. It's the second, more practical, yet much harder way. If we see a brother in need and can meet the need, then we should. Now let me be clear, first of all, if the words that have just formed in your mind are, that person should give me, then you've missed the point. It's not about what you think they should give you. You don't understand. It's about what you can do. You know, communism, and some people say the church is a communist state, but communism says, all that you have is mine. And that's not the Christian way. But that's how many of us behave. Well, you're a Christian, you should give me that. You know I have need of it, so you should. Friends, that is not the Christian way. The Christian way is communalism. The Christian should say, all that I have is yours. It's not the other way around. It's not all that you have is mine. It's all that I have is yours. That's the way. Because we go back to being the individual. The only person we can change is ourselves. Therefore, the only person that this message applies to in here is yourself. Do you have something that somebody else needs and you can give it to them? Not do they have something you want. Do you have something that they need? That's the way that we show love to one another. 
And so often we get it the wrong way around, friend. And what happens when we get it the wrong way around? We just irritate each other. We get angry with one another. And then we really don't show the love of God. We go the absolute other way inside. In essence, the significance is if we aren't self-centered or selfish, then we are showing the love of God. Friends, people will get to know about us. Not that it's a church that gives away free stuff, because that's not the message we're preaching, but that we're the church where I could go to help people out. Because ultimately, the only person you can hope will respond to this is you. What John finishes with is to tell us that this is how we can know if we are saved. Because all the other stuff our heart confuses us about. You know, it's not that fuzzy washing machine feeling that Pentecostals like to feel all the time. Well, I don't have the washing machine feeling. I don't know if I'm saved today. That's not the way that it works. We stand on the promises of Scripture. And our heart sometimes deceives us. But the Lord is greater than our heart. The devil whispers in our ear like he did to Eve. Are you sure the Lord said that to you? But the Lord is greater than that. Now, if you're thinking this is too hard, I can't do it, or I don't want to do it, then let's finish with these last two verses. The last two verses. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. He who keeps his commandment dwells in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit which he gave to us. I'm afraid to you say, friends, that it's not optional. But it's not a requirement. Rather, friends, it's the outworking of your salvation. A tree must be fruitful, otherwise it's only useful for burning. Friends, don't say in your heart, I can't do this, I won't do this. Instead, let's make sure we do do this. That we can turn to one another and say, I have this. And I know you have need of it. Let me give it to you. Let's just pray. Lord, we thank you because your word does challenge us, Father. And I know that this may be a simple message to say, but not an easy message to do. But I pray, Lord, that we will be doers of your word, not just hearers, Lord. Challenge us with this, Father, Lord, that we don't come with a wrong attitude expecting other people now to bless us. But instead, Lord, let us seek your face as Abel did, Lord, that we might be a blessing to others. So be with us and encourage us, I pray, as a church, Lord, as we grow in your love, the love that you have poured out for us sacrificially, and bless us as we go. In your mighty name, Father. Amen.